Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Although Dante's Divine Comedy is a masterpiece of spiritual writing, it is seldom appreciated as such, since most readers never venture beyond the first volume, Inferno, to continue the spiritual journey into Purgatorio. Join us as we speak with Father Paul Pearson about his recent work, Spiritual Direction from Dante, Ascending Mount Purgatory, and we glean further insights from the Divine Comedy. You're listening to New Books in Christian Studies, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Father Paul Pearson was ordained to priesthood in 1985 and serves as Dean of St. Philip's Seminary run by the Oratorians in Toronto. Father Pearson, welcome back to New Books Network. Thank you very much, Michael. In this episode, we'll be considering the Purgatorio. Even as a Protestant, Purgatorio is probably my favorite of the three books in the Divine Comedy. Why do you suppose it resonates with so many readers? I think it's because we've all experienced a sort of drama of, of the act of conversion. And when we experience that, we, I think we have the expectation that, in fact, the job is sort of done, that we've turned our minds towards God, we've, we've repented from our sins, and as a result, we sort of expect that things are going to be dramatically different. But we're faced with the reality, and Scripture warned us of this, uh, that there's still a battle to be fought. And the mess that we still discover in ourselves, the spiritual baggage that we carry along with us, it can be extremely discouraging. Um, I remember I was baptized as a 21-year-old, and um, I was coming back from my baptism, and many of my friends had come to it. I was at university at the time, and on the way back, I actually lost my temper with one of my friends in the van. Uh, He says, I'm glad to see it's still the old you. And and I said, oh, I'm rather discouraged to find out it's still the old me. Um, And I think we, but we all face that reality. St. Paul calls it the old man that we have to fight against, sort of the flesh and the spirit battle. And so, I think what Dante is looking at is that for people who've already made that act of conversion, who've already repented, how do we face this mess that's still in our lives? We all have an sort of experiential awareness of that, but the way out of it, I think, is interesting. And I think what Dante gives us, and the reason it is so hopeful, is that there, there is a way out. And that you know, the Mount Purgatory is the mountain of hope. And um, because there is a way out, we can do something about this. We aren't just stuck. And I think that feeling of being stuck is one of the most horrible feelings that we can ever have. And so I think Dante really does give us a pathway out. I think that's why so many people um, do find it so agreeable and so encouraging. There are amazing comparisons and contrasts between the Inferno and the Purgatorio. In both places, there is a degree of suffering, but in Purgatorio, there is community instead of isolation, singing instead of groaning, light instead of darkness, hope instead of hopelessness, angels instead of beasts, and liberty instead of slavery. Tell us something about these contrasts and what the major goal of purgatory is. Well, I think purgatory, immediately when we enter, we recognize the difference between purgatory that we're just about to ascend and the hell that we just left. Because first of all, it's light, and Dante is 
aware that everything here runs on the power of grace. From when he sees the boat coming in with the new souls arriving, and it's driven entirely by the power of angel wings on the on on the front of the ship. Um, there's nobody rowing the oars. It's not this sort of workspace sort of thing. It really is the just the triumphal power of grace producing this this um, transformation, and everything there happens by this power of grace. And I mean, so much so that light, which symbolizes grace, there is necessary for any sort of any sort of progress. So as soon as the light goes off. Everything has to stop. You have to drop wherever you are, and you can't go any further that night because you can't progress without the light. You can't move on without the grace. Um, and I, but I think as a result of all this, this, this confidence in grace, everybody there has um, a confidence in the victory that they're going to have. Not just a confidence, but a certainty. And that certainty produces a, a, a mental state in them that I think is, is really something so appealing. They know exactly what they're about. They know exactly what their goals are. And they are entirely dedicated to, to doing whatever is necessary to get to heaven. Now, you'd think that should be our attitude here on earth. Um, if you figured out what heaven really was, you'd say, this should be my project. But it's not really until we get to purgatory that we find people who are truly wholehearted. And so I think that wholeheartedness and the power of grace are the, are the most whole, are the most fundamental differences I see. There's so many other differences, as you were mentioning, um, and all of those are, are uh, intended by Dante as a way of showing us just how fundamentally different it is once we've made that jump and have converted. Once we're working in the realm of grace, the world's a different place. As much as one can glean by reading the Inferno, I'm always struck by how much more one discerns when reading Purgatorio afterward mm -hmm. and then looking back again to the Inferno. Can you give us an example or two of parallel scenes between Inferno and Purgatorio and some of the wisdom or lessons we glean from the comparison? Well, yeah, Dante writes like a medieval architect builds a cathedral. I mean, it's, it's all organized. It's all in proper proportion. And if you find a parallelism, it's probably intended uh, because they're, they're, the medieval mind works that way. I mean, you think it's St. Thomas' Summa. And for Dante, this is the way he writes. So I'm never surprised when I find new parallelisms. One of my favorite parallelisms is um, Dante using the word to be lost, smarire. And that word comes up in the very first canto of Inferno when he's lost in the dark wood. In the very middle canto of Purgatory, the light comes out, the light of grace, and it's a little too bright for him still because he's still a little blinded by his sins. And he's temporarily blinded by the light. And as a result, he's sort of lost in the light of grace. But in the very last canto of Paradise, the hundredth canto of the entire thing, he gets lost in the light of glory. But now the being lost is a, is a lovely thing. It's a triumphant thing. So you go from lost in Canto 1, lost in Canto 50, and lost in Canto 100 of the, of the Inferno, of the uh, of Paradiso, the, the last Canto 33. Um, and you, you see that he has intended this being lost as a sort of organizational principle. I love the entrances that you get to the, to the different, um, to Inferno and Purgatorio, the gates of hell, abandon hope all ye who enter here, and then the gates of Purgatory, with the steps leading up of con confession, contrition, and satisfaction. Um, and the, the angel there, who's 
you think is probably there to defend the gates of purgatory because you had to fight your way into hell. Uh, at least Dante did. But the angel is lamenting the fact the gates here don't open nearly as often as they ought to because people don't present themselves. And that, he, and that there's, you know, this, the, the gates creak because they don't get frequent enough use. Um, so, but everything is there is designed for this, this special um, accessibility of purgatory. And so I think that the sort of attitude of the guards there at the gates of hell and the gates of purgatory, especially when you get to the city of Dis, I think are, are lovely parallelisms too. Those are the ones that really strike me the most. There are, but there are so many, and, and they've been a lot of work done just recently about these, looking at the different fifth cantos, different eighth cantos, and they all have interesting things to draw out. I'm more interested at this particular moment of looking at the individual sins, because I think that's where I find information that actually transforms me. Um, when I see what it means to, to, um, to battle against anger, for example, in hell, we learned out how destructive anger is. But in purgatory, we learned, so we learned how to unravel that, how to sort of repair the damage. And so I think look, just looking at the individual sins from hell to purgatory is an interesting contrast too. You see the corruptive power of the sin. That's the emphasis in Inferno. But once you get to purgatory, we're really looking for the cure, not the diagnosis. And so I think it's very interesting to, to, to parallel those the things according to the sins. You look at lust, and then you look at the, the virtue of, of um, chastity at the top of, of Mount Purgatory, and you see how very different they, those, those cantos are. The images Dante uses stick in one's mind as a reader. You find yourself in some trial, maybe as light as getting a flat tire, and you can gauge your own reaction. Am I reacting in an infernal way? where it's all grumbling and hopelessness and anger? Yeah. Or am I reacting in a purgatorial way, where I trust that somehow this is a part of God's plan for my good, for my sanctification, so I can persevere through this problem with hope and even with a good attitude? It, it is, and I, I think that that attitude, as you say, the sort of purgatorial attitude, is such an important one in our lives. Everybody in purgatory is sort of with the project. They, in fact, when Dante stops them to talk to them, they're very different from the souls in hell. The souls in hell all want to be distracted. They all want to t tell their story because at least for a little while, they can forget what they're going through. The souls in, in purgatory will talk to Dante out of charity because they know he needs some guidance. But in the end, they want to say, listen, out of charity for me, now keep it short because I have work to do, work that's keeping me out of heaven. Um, and uh, so they're convinced that the work that they're going through, yeah, it might be painful, but it's, it's productive. And imagine how different our lives as Christians would be if we had the same conviction about the daily life that we lived. You know, that what I went go through today is actually a gift from God provided for me by his providence. And it's the best thing that I could do for him. I know that because he sent it. And that's the sort of certainty that the people in purgatory have. And sometimes you see it in Christians and we get it every once in a while, but they have it all the time. And I think that is, well, once again, it's because they're living entirely in the context of grace. And we, we lose the grasp of that awareness, of, the, of that reality all the time. I want to consider two scenes from Canto 27. The first is when Dante needs to undergo the purging of lust by walking into a wall of flame. Mm -hmm. 
He's too scared to enter the flames, but when Virgil reminds Dante that his beloved Beatrice is on the other side, he enters the flames. On page 330 of your book, you write, quote, Fear can help us begin the journey, but only love will give us the strength we need to complete it, end quote. That's a remarkably profound statement, and love is literally central to Dante's Purgatorio and, by extension, of the whole comedy. Explain for us how love relates to sanctification. Yes, well, you know, as I said, the, the fear can be the be- is the beginning of wisdom, and it often will get us moving. But, you know, it, it doesn't have lasting power. It, it doesn't keep you going for the, any length of time. And in the end, we need this idea of a goal, and that goal needs to be something that is so profound for us that nothing else matters. And once I've set my eyes on that goal, everything is for the sake of that one thing. And it's now, instead of the, the, the um, impetus being something from outside of me, it's arising from my very being. It's something which is coming from my core. And it's no longer me giving in to something outside. It's, it's now I've been so united with this desire that that, des- that object out there is me. And so I've been transformed by this reality. And um, for, for us as Christians, setting our goal, our mind on heaven, is supposed to be doing that all the time for us. Beatrice sort of stands for Dante as a picture of all of the connections and glories of heaven. Um, that always happens for us in a very particular picture. And for Dante, it's Beatrice. Um, I feel a little sorry for Dante's wife sometimes. <laughs> she doesn't get mentioned, but she was there somewhere. Um, so this idea that somehow that in the end, all of our actions are motivated by love is, is at the bottom really of, of all sort of Christian morality too, that whatever we desire most, we desire for the sake of love. And so a fear-based religion, a religion that's only about obeying the rules is something which in the end is, might be necessary, but it's never effective for actually producing holiness because holiness takes so long. If you're going to persevere, you need to have this implacable desire inside. And and love can burn like that. It can keep burning. Fear doesn't do that. And I think the flames that Dante enters here, it's, it's, it's interesting that it's love that drives him into the flames, but the flames that are there are actually the fire of love that he's entering into. Um, It's it's a strange thing that the people being purged of lust are being purged from lust by being immersed in love, discovering the real thing instead of the counterfeit. So I think that those those flames are actually working in a bunch of different ways symbolically. On the one hand, it's talking in this general way about love as the motivating principle, but another way about how lust is a counterfeit for the fundamental love we're supposed to have that really transforms us from the inside. That reminds me of Augustine's words, wherever I go, it is my love that gets me there. A second scene in Canto 27 is when Dante has passed through the terraces of purgation and is freed from sin. This is one of my favorite scenes. Virgil tells him, quote, Lord of yourself, I crown and mitre you, end quote. Well, on page 331 of your book, you comment on this scene writing, Quote, Dante has now reached the true goal of the spiritual life, the freedom of man. His conscience is properly formed and freed from slavery to sin. And so to fail to follow its will would be to stray, end quote. 
Dante's Purgatorio is deeply about liberty. Can you expand on this idea for us? From the very beginning, the first canto, when uh, Dante and Virgil meet Cato there on the shores of Mount Purgatory, Cato says, what are you doing here? How'd you get here? And, Cato, and Virgil explains to him, he comes seeking his freedom. That was the expressed purpose of their journey through purgatory. And I think it's the purpose for all of us. It's not primarily about punishing. It's primarily about rehabbing us so that we can actually re regain our full freedom of movement spiritually, so we can be what we were created to be. Sin always limits us. I, I look at sin as sort of like a, a twisting of a muscle in a direction it's not supposed to go. If you do that regularly, you end up shortening your muscles and res restricting your freedom of movement and your range of movement. And so it's only when you undo all that twisting that you get back that full freedom again. And so for Dante, the pur pur each purgation is a freedom from a sort of unnatural twistedness that he had. And you often see at the end of each terrace that he goes to the next terrace and climbs the, the, the steep climb much easier because he's getting lighter and lighter. And it's almost, you can feel the burdens just sort of being shed. And the Christian life is supposed to be like that. And I think back to my times before conversion and think, oh my goodness, what was I doing? <laughs> How did I do it? Um, you know, that's now you know, 40 years ago, but it's, um, it's a lovely thing to, to see that somehow this project of holiness is in the end, not just a matter of duty, it's a search for freedom. It's a way of discovering the fullness of what I'm supposed to be. And that giving to God, glory to God and finding my freedom aren't two different projects because I'm his creature from the beginning. And so being what I can be and giving him glory coincide perfectly. And so there in, in purgatory, we discover that doing God's will is in our own self-interest. Um, and Dante now can, can be this Lord of himself, finally. And it is a cause for rejoicing. I love the fact, too, that when anytime somebody finishes their purgation on Mount Purgatory, the whole mountain shuts down for a second and everybody rejoices. And th that idea that somehow it's a cause of universal celebration to see a soul be freed. One provocative way of putting it would be that in paradise, we get to do whatever we want. The catch being that our wants, our wills, will be so sanctified and perfected, we will only want to do that which glorifies God and will enjoy it. We think of being good now as sort of clamping down on ourselves. Instead of letting ourselves go. Um, you were quoting St. Augustine earlier, and one of my favorite quotations from him is, love and do what you will. If you love correctly, that is, once you've properly ordered, then heaven means being full throttled and open, not being clamped down anymore. And that's part of Dante's freedom, is that because his, his desires are now properly ordered, he doesn't need to be in this constant state of holding everything down in place. He can now use all of these desires now that they've been purified. Um, the great um, medieval scholar who's known mainly for his, um, for his more popular thing, C.S. Lewis, in his little book, The Great Divorce, which is one of my favorite things, um, has a man who was troubled by lust. And in the end, he rides his lust into heaven, the little 
lizard on his shoulder has been transformed into a marvelous stallion. Once the, our desires have been transformed by grace, they become something dramatically bigger and something which now become a driving force of our spirituality. We often think of our human nature and our passions as something which are fundamentally in the way of holiness. But the message of Dante is so more human than that, that somehow perfecting our human nature is going to be part of the process of holiness and that the saints are the perfect human beings. I don't have to deny my humanity to get to heaven. I have to perfect it. And as um, the, the church fathers say that we don't lose our individuality by becoming holy, we discover it. Perhaps surprising to many readers, on the summit of Mount Purgatorio, we find the Garden of Eden. As a final point of discussion, let me read one of your comments on Canto 29. This is from page 348 of your book. You write, quote, It is interesting that for Dante, earthly paradise is not a collection of sensual desires, an ongoing feast. It is the church in all its glory. What the church offers mankind is precisely what will bring us as close as we can possibly come to paradise while we are still here on earth. Explain this idea for us. Yes, well, I mean, first of all, the, the idea that somehow paradise can be something which is just a sort of fulfillment of all my passions is, a, is fu a fundamentally a sort of animalistic idea of paradise. You know, somehow you feed me and keep me comfortable and I'll, I'll be in, in, in bliss. Well, there's more to bliss than that. And as social beings and as beings who are having a fundamental connection with our creator, we can't be fully who we are without gathering together and worshiping God. And that worship isn't something we do merely because God deserves it, but because we can't exist without it. It's, it's like loving your parents or loving your children. And it, it isn't just something you do because you're told to. It's part of who we are. And our perfection means discovering what it means to be a creature again, discovering what it means to be taken care of by God every moment of our lives. And that discovery can't sit on its own and be inactive. It naturally spills over into worship. And so a human being who sees the reality of God is a human being immediately who worships. And so to be a perfect human being, I think, means to be a human being who gathers together with other human beings to worship. That the, this idea that somehow I could separate being spiritual from being religious is not, certainly not Dante's idea, and not mine either. Um, that's, it's going to be fundamentally an, a thing that's organized. Um, it's not something which is going to isolate me from others, although it might isolate me from individual people, but it's going to bring me closer and closer to the people with whom I worship. Um, and I need that structure. I need some, I need a, a gathering of people. I need a way of coming together for worship. I need liturgy. I need all those things. And, and purgatory has been a sort of training place for getting you ready for that sort of paradise. Very liturgical with Lots of singing, lots of, you know, you get good at singing hymns by the time you get to the top. Uh, you, you memorize a lot of, of your psalms and things that people should have known anyway. Uh, but by the time you get to Mount Pur top of Mount Purgatory, it's a, it's a pageant after a pageant. And, and I think for, for us to recognize that somehow that's not just something I do because I'm obliged to do. 
there's a fundamental human need for that. And it's actually the most elevated human need that we have. And that's why we only really get it fully when we get to the top of Mount Purgatory and all the other problems have been put in their proper place. Then I'm fully free to, to worship. Many of the early church fathers had this biblical theological understanding of the church and its sacraments that Dante brings out where baptism brings us back into Eden as it brings us into the church. Well, and certainly follows with St. Paul, you know, the, uh, you become a new creation. Um, that somehow that the work of original sin is being undone by baptism. I mean, that's the fundamental purpose of baptism is to undo the damage of original sin and to put me back into a proper relationship with God. And, and I, I think we, we tend to buy the sort of secular view that we're just marking a, 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 or celebrating a birth rather than actually celebrating a new birth. And because we can't see it, because we can't analyze it with a stethoscope or check it on an, an MRI, we think it's not real. But that reality of being baptized, of actually being incorporated into Christ, of being adopted by the creator of the universe, that's something. And as we, especially as we celebrate Easter, the, as the liturgy talks over and over again about newness of life, what we're really talking about is this new life that comes into us because we're incorporated into Christ, because we're part of him. As St. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I think that language is one that we do need to re rediscover. Um, certainly in, in paradise, as we'll have a chance to talk about sometime in the future, um, it's often difficult to know what you're seeing. Are you seeing Christ? Are you seeing the saints? And it just sort of flashes back and forth, like one of those postcards that when you tip it one way at somebody and tip it the other way at somebody else. And um, is it Christ or is it the saint? And the answer is, yes, it is. Because it, the act of holiness is always an act of me working in union with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that's why for us, thinking of holiness isn't taking anything away from the fact that Christ is the one holy one, um, the one true mediator. And I can say all those things and still believe that I can be a saint because his holiness is going to flow into me. And I think that idea of this new life coming and flooding into our souls is what Mount Purgatory is about. And it's why it's so important that it's there out in the open, in the sunlight, with the, that power of grace streaming down on it all the time. So even though it's not always made explicit that we're talking about the power of baptism, the power of God's grace that work in our lives, if you think about all the times that the light is an, a dominant image there. And you think about the fact that everything shuts down at night, you see just how important that baptismal grace is for Dante. Now, speaking of the vision of Christ, each of the comedy's three books ends with a vision of God. In the Inferno, of course, it's a parody, Satan with his three mouths. Tell us about the vision of Christ at the end of Purgatorio. Christ the Griffin. Yes, yes. maybe just yes. explain that for us. Yes, well, you know, uh, uh, the idea of this mythological animal, the griffin, is that he's a combination of two different natures. And what Dante is using here is, is this image of the griffin to show Christ fully human and fully divine. It's really an image of the incarnation. 
And so we see that the way in which God enters into our world and transforms our life is through the incarnation. So it, it, we get this incarnational moment there at the, at the top of Mount Purgatory. That's what makes heaven possible. That's what opens the doors of heaven. And so the last thing we're going to see there at the top of Mount Purgatory is the mystery of the incarnation. Um, and so we see a sort of flashing back and forth once again between the, the eagle part of the griffin, which is the divine nature, and the other part, which is the human nature. And it just, which one is it? And the answer is, yes, it's both of those. Is Christ human or is he divine? Yes. <laughs> um, he's a divine person with two natures. And that's true both of the reality of Christ himself, but it's also true of his mystical body. So when we look at his church as it exists on earth, we're going to see those human elements, which can sometimes be a little distressing. Um, we saw lots of church leaders in hell. We saw a lot of them in, in purgatory. And But on the other hand, underneath all of that, we're convinced that somehow, despite all these defects, that we're still dealing with the mystical body of Christ. And that ties this sort of pageantry about the nature of the church together with the incarnation too, because in the same way that Christ has a human and divine nature, the church has a human and divine nature too. And so what you see is not really all that you get. And it takes the eyes of faith to be able to see more than that. Often what we see are just the annoying people who are there in the church with us, including ourselves. Um, but uh, to, to be able to see through that and to see the power of God at work in our world, that happens through the incarnation. And it's not something that stops with our Lord ascending into heaven. It's something that continues through the ages, through the Christian church. I used up my last question already, but we cannot say goodbye without first mentioning that something sort of sad occurs in Purgatorio. Namely, we do say goodbye to Virgil. Yes, well, you know, I think one of the issues about interpreting Dante throughout the Divine Comedy is that often we put Dante, or to a greater extent, Virgil, into the position of the all-knowing narrator. And I think that's not true. Virgil, I think, starts off with a very defensive view of himself and grows dramatically to the time where we say goodbye to him at the end of Purgatory. He becomes to realize that perhaps he wasn't so innocent as he thought. In fact, you know, he's inside the gates of hell. He's been assigned to the first circle of hell, and you're not there for no reason. And he first said, it was because I was born at the wrong time. It wasn't my fault. Well, he grows and realizes that after he meets Statius, the, the, the Latin poet, who converted because he read Virgil, said, oh my goodness, if he converted because he read me, then maybe I'm responsible for not having accepted the intervention into my life that God gave me. And so we see him begin to say, oh, I didn't live up to the gifts that I'd been given. I'd been entrusted with something truly great. The early Christians thought that Virgil had a sort of proto-gospel in, in, um, in his writings. They, he had actually mentioned something that sounded very much like the virgin birth. And because of that, Christians had a special place for Virgil. This is why Dante was, it made so, so much sense for him to use Virgil as his guide. Christians thought of him as a sort of uh, uncle of Christianity. 
um, never quite part of the inner core, but he had a glimpse. But that glimpse comes with a responsibility. We, we have to act on our conscience. And as soon as you know something, you have to act. And what happened to Virgil was he was given the glimpse, but he didn't act. And that's a real issue that comes up consistently in purgatory. People who've known what to do and either delayed or didn't act. Virgil didn't act. There's a whole area of anti-purgatory, that's A-N-T-E purgatory, where people who delayed getting around to the business of living their, their Christian life, who put it off for one reason or another, um, have to have to deal with that. It's not as though they're going to be given a pass because they converted on their deathbed. Say, oh, well, you, you did it at the last minute, you can go straight to heaven. Not at all. Not at all. You, you didn't live up to your responsibility. And so Virgil, I think, is, is a character who is given so much and to whom much is given of him, much will be expected. And he didn't follow through. So he's a sort of object lesson for, for all of us that somehow we have to act on what we've been given the grace to know. And that's a scary thought. And yes, so Vir Virgil takes us all the way through. And not only does he get Dante to the end, but he also comes to a place where now he understands the justice of his own, his own eternal state. And I think if he hadn't met, met Statius, who converted because of Virgil, he might not have come to that full realization. The development of Virgil as a character is one of the other aspects to Dante's brilliance. Absolutely brilliant. Once again, Father Paul, it has been a joy to talk about Dante with you, and especially the spiritual nuggets that can be gleaned from his comedy. We will look forward to yet another installment when your book on Dante's Paradiso comes out. Any update on that publication? Well, they're talking about late summer, early fall for the release of the book. It's it's in the editing process now. Um, so it, they're... The Dante's death date is the 13th, 14th of September. So uh, yeah, that'll be his 700th anniversary of his death. So I'd, it'd be lovely if it were sometime around then. That would be a, a nice birthday present for him. Um, a birthday into heaven, that is. Um, so um, I, I think it'll probably be around September. Great. Thank you. My pleasure. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time.